book of Philemon is actually our third message now, and uh, we've seen the background of the book, which is really important, as always, as with any book, but I would say especially with the book of Philemon. But if you'll remember, Philemon was a wealthy church member, and he was an active church member of the church at Colossae. In fact, we find out even in this letter that the church was meeting in Philemon's home. And what had happened, Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus, and we've already talked about uh, slavery in Roman times and how different it was from what we think about slavery uh, in America. It happened in Britain and how... Uh, We spent a whole message talking about and showing from the Scriptures how it would have been condemned if people had just read their Bible. Uh, That's not what we're talking about here, something totally different. We'll rehash that. But uh, Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus, and apparently Onesimus had stolen something probably very valuable from Philemon. I mean, he had to have something to finance this trip here, this fugitive journey. And... Uh, during this time, Onesimus evidently has some second thoughts and he goes to where Paul is in prison and he seeks for Paul to be some type of mediator between he and Philemon. And during this encounter with Paul, Onesimus comes to saving faith in Christ and so Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, understanding that uh, Philemon uh, had been led to Christ by Paul years earlier. They evidently had a a relationship, and I'm sure that Onesimus knew this, which is why he sought out Paul. And no doubt, this, had, this whole thing had hurt Philemon. We have no reason at all to believe that Philemon mistreated Onesimus. In fact, in our text, we've already read, in the text we're going to read again this morning, uh, we've seen that Philemon is a man of compassion. He, uh, Paul mentions his loving nature and character three different times in the first seven verses. If, if he had mistreated Philemon... It would have gone against every single thing that Paul says about him here. And I think it's much more likely that he treated Onesimus like a son. And you can only imagine if you have somebody living in your home that you have loved and cared for and invested in, and they steal from you and run off, it's going to hurt you. It's going to cut you. And so even by the way that Paul writes this letter, uh, we can understand that Paul writes it in such a way as to leave the door open for some possible bitterness and unforgiveness on Philemon's part. And so last week we began to talk about the high cost of unforgiveness. We looked at two things specifically, uh, that being relationships and our rejoicing in Christ. Uh, as I mentioned before, you can, when you have bitterness and unforgiveness against somebody that hurts you deeply... You cannot confine it to that one relationship. It's going to bleed over into every meaningful relationship in your life. You can't control it. It it puts a bitterness within us. A lot of times we don't even recognize it. We think, well, if I'm not around that person, if I just go about my life, and but it just doesn't work like that. Uh, also, it costs us our rejoicing in Christ. It It essentially shuts off the valve of the grace of God in our life. It's not that we lose our salvation, but our fellowship is greatly harmed. And so we looked at those two things, and we want to continue that thought today, the second part of the high cost of unforgiveness. And we're going to look at two more things today. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our text, and uh, we'll read the first nine verses uh, this morning. In Philemon, beginning verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, And Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, 
our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Ophia, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this day you've given us that we set aside to just come worship you and God, just magnify you in song and in the preached word, and I pray that uh, that would be the case today. We thank you for this church. Thank you for the family you've put together, God, the unity, the love that we share. And Lord, in the midst of uh, everything that is going on, Lord, in our own personal lives or in the lives of this church, and God, even in our nation, what a blessing it is to have a church family like this. I pray that you'd empty me of sin and self and just fill me your Holy Spirit. God, that you would meet with us, that you would show us where we are as individuals and show us where you want us to be. God, I pray that uh, you would save the lost, if that be the case this morning, that you would comfort the hurting, and God, that uh, you would help those that might be dealing with this very thing of unforgiveness. If there be any unforgiveness, if there be any bitterness in any of our lives, God, I pray that you would reveal it and grant us repentance and brokenness over that thing. God, set us free today. And we give these things to you, it's in Christ's name, and for his sake, amen. So we're looking at the second part of the high cost, the high price of unforgiveness. And what it co- I'm talking about as believers now. As believers, we can fall into this trap. There's no doubt about that. I've experienced it. I, I got very personal. I shared that with you all last week. Uh, But what will it cost us? What will unforgiveness and bitterness cost us as believers? The first thing I want to talk about this morning, just going to discuss two things. Uh, The first thing is our reputation. Look at verse 4. Paul says to Philemon, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love. Notice that hearing part. He is hearing these things about Philemon. Hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. And so Paul is not ambiguous at all about the person and character of Philemon. He's a loving Christian man. He's got a seemingly wonderful Christian family. Paul addresses the letter, as we saw last week, not only to Philemon, but to his wife, Aphia, and their son, Acrippus, who was also, he called, a fellow soldier uh, in Christ. And so uh, he seems to have it put together. He's a very compassionate man. And so it would seem to be obvious how somebody like Philemon could be so deeply hurt by somebody like Onesimus. As I mentioned last week, those that love deeply make themselves vulnerable, and therefore their uh, 
because they are vulnerable, they're more apt to be more deeply hurt. And so, probably Paul is reminding him of his reputation. And if there was some bitterness and unforgiveness in the heart of Philemon, then this had to have been convicting to Philemon. It's almost in a way of reminding Philemon of the way that Paul remembers him. Well, that would be so convicting to get a letter like that from the Apostle Paul talking about the character of a man that you may not be at that moment, certainly not acting like at the moment. And so it can cost us our reputation. When I use the word reputation, I'm specifically talking about our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to be clear because of the part of the country we live in and what testimony means to so many people around here. But testimony is a good Bible word that means to bear witness or to bear record. Uh, it's actually a legal term. You know, people give testimony in a court of law. Uh, but it, it, while it carries that connotation, it can be more personal. And, and I love the way that the word testimony is used in Hebrews 11 and verse 5 in reference to Enoch. It says, For before his translation, talking about Enoch, before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. <laughs> That's a good testimony to have, isn't it? Amen. And so the writer of Hebrews is testifying to the life and character of Enoch. He did that with several people in Hebrews 11. Uh, think about what they said about Abel, that he being dead yet speaketh. Uh, you know, wouldn't it be great at our funeral if somebody could say they had this testimony that they pleased God? And so it, it, the idea of a testimony is not something that's just said, but it's something that's proven by our life. And the proof is in the pudding. I guess you can write that down if you are familiar with that or not. I, I think I need my Miranda rights read to me. Whatever I say can and will be used against me in a court of church opinion. But that's okay. I'm going to say it anyway. But it, it's more than just what we say. You can say anything. Talk is cheap. People talk all the time. In fact, we, we've seen that with social media. I mean, the world is full of keyboard warriors that say things online they would never say to your face. And all of God's children say that. Somebody once said, I don't know if Facebook has allowed the lame to walk, but it sure allowed the dumb to speak. <laughs> talk is cheap. Anybody can talk, but what is your walk? That's what a testimony is, that just like Enoch, when you die years later, what they remember about you is the way that you live. That is your testimony. Now, we can have a good testimony for Christ, or we can have a bad testimony for something else. If we're living for something else, that's what we'll be remembered for. And so a testimony for a Christian is... Very important. Listen, a testimony is not just some weird burning in the bosom. It's not just a feeling or a visit from an angel or a dead so-called prophet. A testimony for Christ really has two elements to it. This is really important. The first element of a true testimony for Christ is a salvation experience by grace through faith. And I had an LDS person ask me, it's a, great, it's a very relevant, great question. And that is, how can you vet your salvation experience any more than I can vet my experience of the burning in the bosom? And the answer to that question is this. 
They're told to have those experiences. They're pushed to have those experiences. So it comes as no surprise that they had the experience. But when it comes to the new birth experience, when it comes to being saved by the grace of God, that is something that God does in our hearts when we weren't even told to do it. When God saved me, you know what I heard? Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God's at hand. And I, I don't even remember the text. I don't remember the sermon. I just remember what God did in my heart. Nobody told me that. In fact, I can't even cause myself to be born again. I just knew that the message that I was uh, being told and that I was hearing, it was bigger than a preacher. It was bigger than uh, even words on a page. Those words had come alive. And nobody told me to experience those things. But what's amazing is when I go back to the Scripture and I read those things, I said, wow, that's what happened to me. You see, nobody told me that I had to do those things or that I had to feel this certain way or that I had to, to ask for certain things. That, it just came. It was a work of God, a, a supernatural work of God in our hearts. And I go back to the Scripture and I realize, hey, that was the Holy Spirit convicting me through the preached gospel. That's the difference. It's, it's a total reversal of the roles. And I hope in your own heart and life... Now listen, I'm not one of those people that says you have to remember the exact date or the exact hour. You have to remember every detail about it. I, I do believe that it comes differently for different people. Um, now me, I can't I can remember the day. Like I said, I can't remember the sermon. I can't remember the text. I can remember where I was. Uh, I can't remember, the, I guess, the exact date. I could go back on a calendar. Look, I know... I know it was the last Sunday of June in 1999. I couldn't tell you what day that was. Um, and so uh, that's when God put me under conviction. That's, I remember that. I remember Him showing me that I was a sinner on my way to hell under the judgment of a wrath, uh, and wrath of a holy God and that I needed a Savior and that He was the only one, Christ was the only one that could save me. And I hope and pray that you can go back in your mind and you do have a testimony of when the Lord saved you, that you do have a genuine salvation experience. That you, you put your faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross to save you. That's the first element. The second element of a true testimony of Jesus Christ is the fruit of that salvation. A fruit that accompanies the root of salvation. Now let me say this, I'll move on. But there is a... I guess it's somewhat of a new doctrine. You can't find it really anywhere in church history going back further than about 100 years or so. Certainly not in the Baptist church. But it's this idea, and the younger generation of Baptist pastors are eat up with this stuff. And that is that all you, literally all you have to do is believe. And, and of course, salvation is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But that faith, that kind of faith without repentance is the same faith that the devils have in the book of James. They believe and tremble. There's no repentance there. Now, do I believe that repentance means that you have to get all your ducks in a row and that you have to get rid of all your sin before you can come to Christ? No. Repentance was never taught that way. But Jesus preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. And, it, and another thing too, this, this younger generation of Baptist pastor, a lot of them believe, oh, well, repentance is just going from a state of unbelief to a state of belief. Show me that in the Bible. If that was true, then why did John the Baptist command them to repent and believe the gospel? 
That doesn't even make sense grammatically if what they say is true. Repentance is a change of mind about your sin. Now, listen, repentance is not about perfection. It's about direction. And whereas, yeah, I may trip and fall going this way, but I ain't going that way anymore. And so repentance and faith are two inseparable sides of salvation. You cannot have saving faith without repentance, and you can't have true repentance without saving faith. You can't separate them. I have no problem saying that. But here's the thing they always miss, and that is that the work of repentance in our hearts, that is the gift of God, just like faith and grace and everything else. And the problem is they've got a God so small they could put Him in their pocket, walk around with Him. So, yes, repentance is necessary. I have no problem saying that there ought to be some fruit that accompanies saving faith. I've got no problem saying that. That is not a work salvation. It is evidence of what Christ has done in and through us. We like to quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and we should, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. But then what, is, what does verse 10 say? What, what does verse 10 say? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which He before ordained that we should walk in them. And so, yeah, that's in the Bible too. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If there's no fruit of salvation, there's no root of salvation. Folks, now, I, I listen, I get that as Christians we can go through seasons in our life where, yeah, we probably don't look too saved. But that is the exception, not the rule. That is a season, and God the Father promises in Hebrews 12 that if that's you, if you're a child of God consistently rebelling against the will of God, He's going to tear you up. Because that's what fathers do. They get a hold of their children. And so, yeah, that's the two elements of a testimony and a reputation. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ and the fruit of salvation. By the way, in these short nine verses that we just read, you may have never heard of Philemon in your entire life, but in nine verses you know that he has a salvation experience in Christ and there's some fruit that accompanies that salvation. Paul didn't have any problem talking about that. And so, uh, yeah, we've reduced the gospel to this one, two, three, repeat after me, and you're good. We're good. Look, the goal is way too low. But that's another message for another day. Um, but for the Christian, for the child of God, there's nothing more important in our lives than our witness and testimony for Jesus Christ. Let me ask some questions here, some pretty pointy questions. Fathers and mothers, parents, do your children see your Christianity at home? Well, in fact, if I was to get them alone and ask them, hey, Outside of church, mom and dad really live for the Lord. Are they real? What would they say? Because they know. They, they see it firsthand. That's the, by the way, what your children know about you is a whole lot more important than what the pastor thinks about you. Because you can fool me. And by the way, even more important than that, what God knows about you is more important than what anybody else knows or thinks. But what would your children say? What, what would your spouse say? Hey, is your, your husband or your wife, they really living for God? They, do they really love Jesus Christ or are they just putting on? What's their devotion time? Like? What's their prayer time? What's their attitude like at home? Uh, what about if you try to tell your neighbors or coworkers about Christ? Would they look at you like Lot's children looked at them? Look at him when he said that uh, 
God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says they looked at him as one that mocked. Hey, hey, Lot's talking about God. Hey, get, get a load of this. He's talking about God. They didn't even believe him because they didn't see it in his life. And so uh, we need to keep these things in mind. The, the testimony is just so important. But um, even more important than all that, like I said, is what does God know about what's in your heart? Now, Philemon, he had a wonderful testimony of Christ, so much so that the Apostle Paul makes mention of how it impacted the believers in Colossae. But here's the thing, and this is getting back on track of exactly what we're talking about. Unforgiveness and bitterness can destroy your testimony in a very short period of time. Um, A loving and joyful spirit can be changed into a bitter and hateful one. Happiness can be turned into hate. Patience can be turned into impatience. Charity into indifference. Respect into rudeness. Compassion into being closed-fisted. All because a spirit of unforgiveness and bitterness has taken root in our heart. And if Philemon had unforgiveness and bitterness towards Onesimus, then all of what Paul said just kind of goes away. You've got to hit the pause button on all that. And I, I think one of the saddest things that can ever be said about a child of God is when people talk about us in terms of the way that we used to be. Now, for a person who is lost and they get saved... What a blessing to talk about what Christ brought us from and the way that we used to be and we're not that way anymore. That's great when we talk about being made a new creature in Christ. But for those who are saved, for those that have been walking with the Lord for years and you have a testimony and something happens in your life, maybe you fall into a sin, maybe you get with the wrong crowd or you begin your faithfulness begins to wane or in this case, you have unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart. What a shame for people to talk about you in terms of the way that you used to be. I mean, if I just let my sanctified imagination go for just a minute. I mean, think about Philemon's situation if he did, in fact, have bitterness. Um, would it be something like, man, what's wrong with Philemon? Man, he's been cranky for weeks now. What's wrong with him? Well, I don't know. He's been like that ever since Onesimus left. You know, I'll tell you what, now that I think about it, we, the church hadn't met at his house a single time since Onesimus left. Yeah, it's just really gotten to him. And then that's the conversation. Instead of what Paul is saying here, now it's about the unforgiveness and the bitterness and all the things uh, that a- accompany that. And understand that a, a true child of God can never lose their salvation, but there are things in our life and walk that we can lose and become tarnished. And uh, wouldn't it be uh, sad if the people in town began to talk about Philemon in those terms? Like I said, but uh, what if people talked about that in, in terms of you, like what you're doing? And so, what would the, I mean, what would it be like if they talked about, oh, well, they used to be faithful. They used to be happy. They used to have joy. They used to serve God. They used to have a smile on their face. And now, none of those things can be said. And I tell you how it normally gets people. A lot of Christians that maybe get in that situation, it's usually not something that just comes in like a bomb, like dynamite. It's usually something that comes in like a hammer and a chisel, just just every day, just daily chipping away at your joy. And before you know it, you don't even realize and recognize just how far you've come. You you just wake up one day and you realize, hey, I don't I don't have near as much joy as I used to have. Or maybe I don't even, man, I don't even feel the joy of the Lord at all. I don't even feel the presence of God. Now, there's different things that can hinder those things, but 
I believe one of the number one things is, is some type of unforgiveness and bitterness in our life because the truth is we've all had somebody along the line that's really hurt us. And so I hope these things weren't said about Philemon and I hope that things like that aren't said about you. We could ask the question about ourselves, if that is true, what changed? It could very well be the rotten fruit of unforgiveness and bitterness. Um, I don't want to die and have people talk about what I used to be like at my funeral. Oh, well, he, he used to be like that. What a, sad, what a sad thing to be said of the people of God. Unforgiveness and bitterness will destroy our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a high price to pay. It's more than I want to pay. You know, you can spend years building up testimony in mere seconds tearing it down. God help us. But the second thing, and I really want to spend some time on this this morning, and is the second thing that unforgiveness really costs you is restoration. And restoration, this is really important because this is going to kind of send us on course, uh, kind of change course a little bit from the unforgiveness side to the forgiveness side. And it's going to really set a precedent for everything that we talk about in the coming weeks. But let's look at verse 8 and 9. It says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So Paul is getting ready to ask Philemon to not only forgive Onesimus, but also, it seems that in the language that's used in verse 16, to give him the option of being free or not. And so this is a big deal. And he is appealing to his love for Christ and not, not any kind of rules or, well, you should just do this. And You know, God not only cares about what we do, He cares about why we do it. And, you know, forgiveness is one of those things you just can't really fake. I mean, you can try to convince other people that you, you've changed and your heart's changed toward them or whoever's offended you, but only you and God really know that. He really cares about the heart of it. And Paul is definitely approaching this letter with the idea that there is possible bitterness and animosity on the part of Philemon. Um, that potential was certainly there. Paul is reminding Philemon of who he is in Christ, and um, we're going to talk about this word restore. Man, this is so important. Uh, we've got to get this. Restore is another good Bible word. It, it literally means to go back, to go back or to mend or to, to make things right or make things new. And certainly in our modern English, it, it carries the idea of making something new. And when we think about the word restore, we often think of it in terms of relationships. You know, like, for example, their marriage was restored. But I want you to, here's what I want you to do, at least for today. Now, that is true. We can talk about relationships being restored, and that's proper and right, but it's still too narrow a definition of, of restoration. I want you to think in the purposes of this study. I want you to think in terms of restoration being an individual thing. You see, restoration can take place in your heart regardless of whether or not a relationship is ever restored. And so restoration can be a personal, individual thing, and I found some great examples of this in the Scripture. Of course, we're all familiar with Psalm 23, but uh, Psalm 23 and verse 3, it says, He restoreth my soul, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So the psalmist talks about his soul being restored or being made new. Uh, 
when David was grieving and repenting over his sin with Bathsheba, he said in Psalm 51 verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. So he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And, and this is important to point out, to just doctrinally speaking. But he didn't say, Restore to me my salvation. He said, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. So that, that's a very important distinction to make. Um, and when speaking here in Joel, uh, the book of Joel, when speaking about the restoration of Israel, which is what we're talking about on Wednesday nights, when speaking about the restoration of Israel and Christ's coming kingdom, uh, Joel the prophet says in chapter 2 and verse 25, he says, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And so uh, the Lord said He's going to restore the things that Israel has lost. And so it carries the idea of going back or making something new. And what I love about the word restore in the Old Testament, what we just read out of Joel, restore comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which as many of you know means peace. So when we talk about Jehovah shalom, that's God our peace. And so to be restored means to be at peace. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, Bible word. And whether it's bitterness, unforgiveness, guilt, shame, or sin in general, we can, by the grace of God, get up and dust ourselves off and go back. We can be restored. Isn't that a, a wonderful promise? And in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about the reconciliation of broken and bruised relationships. But understand this. As I mentioned before, restoration and forgiveness has nothing to do with anybody but you. Restoration is all about you and God. That's it. it has, there's no place for that other person as far as restoration and forgiveness. And, you know, isn't it a blessing to know that our peace, our joy, our restoration, all of these things are not contingent. They're not in the hands of the one that hurts you. Wouldn't we be in a mess? if our joy and peace was in the hands of the people that have hurt us? So, so unforgiveness is all on you. And forgiveness is all on you. Restoration is on you. Reconciliation is a different thing. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But I want you to understand that. We're talking about restoration. So then come, always comes the question. It's happened in counseling many times, and I can tell when I bring it up in church. When we talk about Oh, well, you need to forgive that person. Well, then the natural question arises, well, how do I do that? I mean, where is the forgiveness button that I can push and just... Because, hey, the work of forgiveness is hard. It could be hard work, so how do we do that? Well, I've got three things that I want to talk about as far as how to forgive, how, how to be free, how to be restored. Three things that will kind of prime the pump here and set us up for uh, next week's message. But the first thing about forgiveness and restoration, I know, this, I know this is deep, okay? But the first one is just simply to forgive. Just to let go. Just to release. Now, I think it's important to point this out because many people hear this and they immediately throw up a wall because they think that forgiveness requires an automatic reconciliation in the relationship of the person that hurt them. And it could be an open door for more hurt, right? 
I mean, and it could be some type of abusive relationship. And so the question is, uh, when I've been counseling, I've had this come up so many times when I'm counseling somebody, and the issue of forgiveness comes up. Well, if I forgive them, then it's going to put me back in that relationship, and it's going to open the door for more hurt. Listen, that's not what you're being asked to do. That is a separate issue. Whether that relationship ever is completely right, whether that reconciliation is made final, that's not even completely up to you, right? You can't control what other people do. And so understand that God is not requiring that anybody be a floor mat. That's not what He's saying. Forgiveness is about you and God. And you can forgive somebody whether or not the relationship ever gets reconciled just because you forgive it doesn't automatically mean that you're a floor mat and you're just set up on the tee for them to come hurt you again. That's not what's being asked of you. We're going to talk about reconciliation, but um, just you have to forgive and let go um, because the truth is uh, you don't necessarily have to be reconciled to be restored in your own heart because, I mean, think about it like this. What if the person that hurt you is dead? How do you, how do you forgive then? How do you... How do you achieve restoration then? I mean, if it had to actually do with that other person, you're in trouble. What if they're dead? It's not between you and them necessarily. But I will say this. I think this is great advice. I I heard about this in a sermon from a preacher friend of mine. He's with the Lord now. But he had a lady come to him uh, in their church after a sermon, and she said, you know, you, you preach on forgiveness But she said, the truth is, I was abused in every way you can be abused by my father growing up. And now as an adult, she said, there's not a day that I don't think about it. I'm enslaved by it. But he's dead now. I can't even talk to him. How can I I confront him? How can I deal with these things? And he said, you need to write a letter to your dad as if he could actually read it. And you need to say everything you've ever wanted to say. And then you need to seal it up in an envelope and you need to burn it. Pray and give it to the Lord. And he said it literally changed her life. She was able to give that up. And so, yes, restoration doesn't necessarily have to do with reconciliation. Um, you know, some might say, well, I've heard this a lot, Pastor Vaughn, you have no idea what they did to me. Well, no, I don't, but I know what we all did to Christ, and that is put Him on the cross and suffer for our sin. Now, I know God the Father did that, but had there been no sin to die for, Christ wouldn't have had to die. And so, yeah, we put Him on the cross, and He forgave us when we didn't deserve it. Now, remember this. That, man, this is so important. This is one of those points. If you don't get anything else I say, get this. Forgiveness is not about the offending party paying a debt that they owe. Forgiveness is about you releasing them from that debt. Nobody's denying that somebody has really hurt you. I believe that your pain is real. Nobody's denying that. They may really owe you some type of debt. But forgiveness is not about them paying back that debt. There's nothing they could ever do to take away what they did to you anyway. So it's not, it's not about them paying debt to you. It's about you releasing them from that debt. Which is exactly what Christ did for us, by the way. We can't forgive for their sake. We have to, again, as I mentioned last week, forgive for Christ's sake. Ephesians 4 and verse 30, it says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So we have to say, you know what? I I might not can forgive them because they deserve it. 
but I can forgive on the basis of what Christ did for me, and I didn't deserve it, and for Christ's sakes, I can forgive them. That's what has to happen. Just forgive, let go, let it go. But the second thing is, kind of piggybacking off of that, is you need to give all your revenge to God. All your vengeance. Because, listen, you cannot separate unforgiveness, bitterness, and vengeance. Whether or not you would ever say it out loud, you want, you want retribution. You want bad things to happen to that person. You want them to feel what they made you feel. Now, you may say, I would never hurt them, I would never do that, but you might not lose sleep at night if something bad happened to them. That's not, that's not good. Uh, Romans 12 and verse 19. Uh, it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place under wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, isn't it interesting? If you were to think about all the ways that a person could possibly rob God, would you think about it in terms of vengeance? He said, Vengeance belongs to me. And if you're sinking vengeance on your own, you're stealing vengeance from me. That's what God is saying. But God promises that He will be the one to repay. Isn't that amazing? And He has all the facts. He has unbiased judgment. <clears throat> the judge of all the earth is always going to do what's right. But what a burden, what a poison in our heart that we would seek, uh, that bad happened to somebody. We would seek the harm of somebody else because of what they've done to us. That's the most unchristlike thing I can think of. And I'll say this. God's got a way of getting folks a lot more than we do. And think about this, if that person who hurt you is lost, imagine seeing them cast into the lake of fire on Judgment Day. It's going to be such a horrific scene that I really believe in that day, it's very possible we're going to feel sorry for the people that hurt us. Think about that. And so we, we have to give that to God. And what a, what a power, what a freedom that we have an open invitation to give the burden of our revenge to God, and He promises to take care of it. He doesn't say they're going to go unpunished. He said, I'm going to take care of it. That's a promise He gives us. And we can be sure that He's going to do it in the right way. Revenge and restoration cannot coexist, but giving up your revenge will lead to restoration. Third thing, if we're going to forgive and we're going to be restored... I'll say this, if you are the offending party, you need to make things right regardless of their response. And this is something I think we've lost sight of in our narcissistic society, is the humility to make things right. If you're the offending party, go make it right. And even if you're not in the wrong, even if it's just a misunderstanding, hey, go, go talk about the misunderstanding. You may never get them to see your side of it but maybe you can at least try to see their side of it. Uh, we need to make things right. Um, <clears throat> Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, He said, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. God says, if you come to give me a gift at the altar, if you bring something to the temple, obviously this wouldn't apply to us today, but we can under, certainly understand the concept. Before you bring your sacrifice or your offering, go make things right 
before you tithe, before you worship in a church service or for the pastor, before you preach a sermon, go make things right. In other words, what are you doing here? What are you doing right here, right now in this moment if you've got things that are not made right? Listen, folks, we've only got a limited amount of time to make those things right. And then there may come a day where they're not here anymore. We wish we could. God help us. We can make those things right. And I really believe there is nothing that God can't restore with repentant hearts. You would be amazed at some of the situations that God has repaired to the point where the people that meet them today and don't know their past, they have no idea what God has done. It really is amazing. There's freedom and forgiveness. There is relief and restoration. And understand that we are never more like Christ than when we forgive others who don't deserve it. Personal restoration sets us free from the hurt that others have caused. Doesn't mean we forget. And honestly, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that forgiving uh, requires forgetting. How can you physically deprogram? How can you erase that from your memory? But the revenge and the hatred and the anger and the bitterness doesn't have to be associated with that anymore. You can have victory and power over those things. Um, restoration is a beautiful thing. And really, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this, this illustration here. I know this may be somewhat redneck, but it's, man, it's, it's a great... When I think about restoration, so I, I love it. I absolutely love it when people take an old car and restore it to, their, to its former glory. Like it's, I've got a friend that's really good at it, and it's been amazing to see some of the old stuff he'd get from a junkyard or behind somebody's house. And I'm talking about paint it, buff it out, fix all the things that are mechanical. I mean, it is like, it's, it's amazing. But that really is a great picture of restoration. Taking that which was rusty and broken and useless and forgotten and making it new again. And y'all are going to have to look this up when I tell you this. But last year around the holidays, Chevrolet came out with an online commercial. It's about four minutes long. And it, it shows this man who's, who's grieving. Um, his wife obviously has recently died. And he goes out to this barn behind his house every year. The only time he goes in that barn is at Christmas. He goes in there to, to hang a wreath and to sit in his old, it's like a, like a 57 Impala. And when he sits there, he's, he's looking at a picture of his wife and he's remembering all the memories of, you know, maybe picking her up for a date or maybe when they got married, just married, you know, as they rode away and, and all the memories they had. And now it's just a reminder of that death, that she's not here anymore. And he can't even in that barn but once a year. And his daughter one year sees him going in there at Christmas and she realizes what he's, do, what he's doing. So she goes to his friends and, he said, and she says, I really want to do something nice for Dad for this, this next Christmas coming up. And so they, while, he, while he's away or something, they go in there and they, they tow the car out of the barn and they completely restore it. <laughs> and when he goes back in there, he sees it for the way it was when he first got it and all those memories come flooding back and you know, his daughter, I cried like a babe when I saw that. But him and his daughter drove off in that. And the whole mentality is that which was broken and painful and hurtful and useless has been restored to the way that it used to be. And that is exactly what happens. Not only when somebody gets saved, but when a Christian lets go of their unforgiveness and their bitterness you can be released from that. You don't have to be a slave to that, and it's not contingent upon what that person does. And you, he can take that 
which is broken and that which seems like it can never be mended, and He can make it right again. You can be restored in your heart. You can have the joy of the Lord again, and you don't have to be a slave to that. He asks us to come and lay those things down. I think about 1 John 1, 9 that was written to believers, that if we confess and forsake, that He would forgive and cleanse. That's the promise. That's to Christians. And I hope today that's not you. I hope you're not festering on the inside. I hope you're not controlled by your hurt. And I hope those people that have hurt you are not continuing to hurt you because it's not hurting them. You feel like somehow that maybe if you, if you give that person forgiveness, that maybe somehow they're stealing your power from you again. No, no. You're getting your power back from the Lord Himself. You're getting your joy back. You're getting your peace back. You don't have to be a slave in unforgiveness. You can lay that down and you say, well, Pastor Vaughn, I, I, I still, I just don't know how to do that. Listen, I, I've had to get to a place in my life sometimes where I start out saying, Lord, I give this to you. But then I realize, even in the midst of the prayer, that I really can't do that. So I have to say, Lord, take this from me. <laughs> the prayer goes from, Lord, I give it to you, to Lord, take this from me. And it may be a process, but He will restore you if you give those things to Him. But you've got to let go. God, I'm giving you my unforgiveness. I'm giving you revenge. I'm, just, I'm tired of carrying this weight. Take it from me. And He will restore you and make all things new. Would you stand this morning as she comes? Lord, we're so thankful for salvation in Christ. And God, if we're honest, we're a lot more impatient with others than you are with 